chance to visit with many of you beforehand, but for the rest of you, I'm sorry I didn't get to greet you. Look forward to catching up with you after the service. But it's great to be here. Uh, We can always remember this church for one thing. My son says, I'll never forget the first time you preached here, Dad, because we left the service here and went out to pick up our newly adopted puppy. So that little puppy is now 95 pounds. He's a big boy. But our Labrador Retrievers, it was October the 3rd of 2010. And a pastor had me back to visit two years ago. And it's always a joy to, to see you folks and uh, fellowship with you all around God's Word. And uh, glad for all of you that are here. I know a lot of folks are away on vacation, so you tell them when you see them that I missed them. And uh, next time I'll come back and catch them. So hope they have a good time and worshiping the Lord with family and friends wherever they are at. But I greet you uh, from Intercity Baptist Church, Pastor David Dorn and our congregation. And uh, we thank the Lord for this church. Uh, I've actually known several of your pastors now over the years. And uh, thankful for your current pastor. Uh, he's been a great blessing. He's a wonderful testimony. And uh, we just thank, thank the Lord for him and his family. And he has a son, Jonathan, that you all know, obviously. Jonathan and my youngest son, Joshua, were classmates, I mean, from nursery age all the way on through, and uh, up until, I think, third or fourth grade uh, when, when the family moved out here. So uh, we thank the Lord for that, and uh, glad to be with you. Let me just uh, start out by saying I, I am somebody who was born and raised here in Michigan, all right, so I guess that qualifies me for being a Michigander. Uh, I have lived in other states, though. But when I was in college, I lived in the state of Tennessee, almost to the Georgia border, the city of Chattanooga. And uh, right just to look out and see Lookout Mountain and Raccoon Mountain and Signal Mountain. And just to the south of us was Chickamauga. We were surrounded by Civil War history. Beautiful, beautiful scenery. And I went to school there for five years, four years of college, a year of grad school, waiting for my wife to finish college. And then uh, several years ago, from 1987 until 1993, I had the opportunity to live in the great Commonwealth of Virginia. And we lived in the city of Fredericksburg. Anybody know where Fredericksburg, Virginia is? How do you know where that's at? You went there. Oh, it's a great place to visit. Beautiful Tons of history. I mean, if you like Revolutionary War history, the early colonial history, there's a um, Martha Washington University named after the mother of our first president. Um, Thomas Jefferson lived not too far away in Monticello. And uh, just surrounded by history, Civil War battlefields. You had the Battle of Fredericksburg, December 1862. All right, I lived on the Union side of the river. They still remember that. Our church was on the Union side of the river, and just across the bridge was the Confederate side of the river. But uh, the Union and Confederates kept bumping into each other. Uh, In the spring of 1863, you had the Battle of Chancellorsville. Anybody heard of Stonewall Jackson, famous Confederate? He was wounded at that battle and later died from his wounds. In December of 1863, um, you had the Battle of... um, the Wilderness, well, it would have been spring of 64, the Battle of the Wilderness, followed by the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse, and then the Confederate retreated to Petersburg where they 
entrenched until a final break which ended the war there in Virginia. So lots of history. You didn't ask for all that free stuff. But uh, just to remind you, I, I have loved the different places where God has put our family over the years. One of the things I enjoyed about Virginia was the scenery. You could go an hour and a half or two and you could be at the ocean. You could go an hour and a half the other way and you could be up in the mountains. And one of the things that I had the privilege of doing, I've always enjoyed the out-of-doors. I mean, I've enjoyed camping since I was a kid. Uh, I've gone canoeing and backpacking many, many times over the years. In Virginia, through our church camp, I was actually able to lead a wilderness camping program for junior high, senior high boys. We had a phenomenal time hiking along the Appalachian Trail. Have you heard of the Blue Ridge Parkway? Well, the Blue Ridge Parkway, when it comes up through the Carolinas, when it enters central Virginia in the Shenandoah National Park, it changes names, and it's called Skyline Drive. Same road. Skyline Drive goes about 100 miles through the park and then ends further north up into Maryland. <clears throat> when I was in Virginia, one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen happen, I, I would be driving up, and you have to take the switchback roads. And the switchback roads meander back and forth up the side of the mountain. And every once in a while, you'll get to something called a scenic overlook. Now, those are really nice. You see people, they've been going back and forth through the the forest on the side of the mountain. And they'll come to that scenic overlook, and they'll pull off, and they'll get out of their car, and they'll go, ooh, and they'll go, Ah, it's just taking all the scenery. I mean, when you, the higher up you get, the further you can see down over the horizon. And you look out over the Piedmont Valley and you can see 40 and 50 miles. And I'll get back in the car and I would go a little further, but I noticed a strange phenomenon. Some people would get back in their car and turn around and go back down. Now, I'd been in those mountains quite a bit and I thought, you, you can't stop and go down now. Don't, don't stop. I know it's a little hard on your car. I know it's a little tense. You've got to pay close attention. You know, difficult driving in the mountains. But don't stop. No, keep going. And I'd see time after time, first stop or the second overlook, and then people would go back down. i go, how could they do that? They must not know what's ahead of them. Because I had been to the top. I had been on every one of those scenic overlooks. I'd been all the way up to the top to the meadows where you could stand and you could look out and you just watch the the eagles and the hawks just soaring, floating up almost effortlessly as they would catch the updrafts from the valley flowing up the side of the mountain. You could go on those trails and you could pick wild berries. You could go, as I did, down under the Appalachian Trail and you could camp next to a waterfall that was hardly ever seen by people because you had to hike back in. You could camp at places where the deer saw so few people, they would sneak right up to the outside of your camping area to see and to smell what was going on. And I thought to myself, every time I saw somebody turn around and go back down the mountain, I thought, you don't realize what you're missing. Yes, it's hard. It's hard on the car, or it's hard hiking to get back up on those mountain trails. But the fact is, if you make the effort, you will never ever regret going the extra mile. You know, it's really much like that in our own Christian lives, isn't it? I mean, if if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, 
If you are banking your eternity on the finished work of Christ, His sacrifice on the cross, His righteousness and not your own, then you have that hope of eternal life. Then as a believer in Jesus Christ, it is God's will for you to keep growing. It is God's will for you to be fashioned more and more throughout each successive year, more and more into the image of Christ. And because one day, when we see Him as He is, we shall be like Him. But that process of going from sinner to newly converted saint to mature believer to in the likeness of Christ is a lifelong process. God has willed, it is His intention, His promise, that all true believers will one day be like Him. We won't be infinite. We won't be divine. We will be godly in the image of Christ without sinful blemish or hindrance of any sort when we get to heaven. On this earth, we have plenty of struggles, plenty of trials, temptations, but it is still God's will that we keep growing and growing and growing. I'd like to turn our attention to the Scriptures this morning, to the book of Philippians, because I don't want you to take my word for it. Uh, anything I say, if it's not rooted in the Scriptures, if it doesn't focus us back to the Scriptures, is of such limited value and no authority, but it is as a preacher proclaims the clear truth, opening the Scriptures and declaring the truth of God and making careful honest application of it, then we have the authoritative truth of God's Word and we cannot reject that. Look at Philippians. And I'm going to start us in chapter 1. We're going to make our way toward chapter 3. Just a couple of quick hops and skips. Then we want to plant firmly and look at a passage in chapter 3. Because my concern is it is always too easy for us to realize God has done something good and special for us and to become complacent, apathetic, indifferent, or even spiritually lethargic and to pull off somewhere and say, I think this is good enough. This is a nice scenic overlook. I'll observe the Christian life from right here where I'm at. The truth is, that's a good place to reflect. It's a good place to to meditate, it's a bad place to stop. The only good place to stop is being like Christ when we see Him as He is. And everything between then and now should be an experience of growing and desiring to grow more like Him and be faithful to Him. Now, that being said, our growth does not depend upon us huffing and puffing and somehow trying to work up a good head of steam and thinking that I can make myself spiritual. The Scriptures declare that we should give purposeful, energetic, persevering effort to the process of spiritual growth, but it's only God who can transform us. We give ourselves over in dependence and obedience to Him, to the Christian disciplines, the things He's laid out for us, of prayer, of Bible study, of worship, of singing praise to God, of gathering together with a body of believers to magnify the name of the Lord. 
But as we do those things, and as we live in obedience and dependence upon Him, the Scriptures give several theological principles that are like a foundation. They're like building blocks. If you want to build a strong building, you have to lay a strong, concrete foundation. Something that won't shift, won't slip, won't collapse. And then you build on top of that. Paul, first of all, lays down some foundation for us, and then he gives us some exhortations, things that we need to act on in light of these eternal truths. So let's look, first of all, chapter 1. Chapter 1, right near the beginning of the verse, of the chapter, chapter 6. <laughs> Excuse me. Chapter 1, verse 6. I hope nobody was looking for chapter 6 in Philippians. All right, not there. All right. All right, verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I mean, he knows that they have partakers, verse 5. They have been partakers in the gospel or sharers together in the gospel from the first day until now. That is, since they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, since they came to faith in Him, they've been sharing together in this life of the Gospel, this work of sharing the Gospel. And he says, because I know that you've been genuinely transformed by the Lord, I am confident of this, this specific thing, that He, that is God, through Christ, has begun a good work in you, will perfect it or continue to perform it till the fullest measure, until the day of Christ Jesus. And, and, and I could put some simple theological statements to that. True spiritual growth can only take place in those who truly possess spiritual life. There are lots of people in this world who are nice people, good people, even religious people. But true spiritual growth only takes place in those who truly possess spiritual life. Otherwise, you have somebody who is dressing themselves up and God is talking about growth that takes place from the inside out, from the heart. The disposition of life has been transformed. We've been regenerated and made new creatures in Christ. That He's changed our heart and He's bringing the product, the byproduct of spiritual growth, transformation in our lives. And I would add to that this statement, true spiritual growth will happen in the life of those who truly possess spiritual life. The Apostle Paul said, I am confident that He that began a good work in you will perfect it. It is God who has committed Himself, put His honor on the line that says, I will keep working in all my true children. I will keep working in their lives. Now, if we look back, if you've ever struggled, if you've ever sinned, I'm not trying to imply if there's a sin anywhere in your life, look back, you must not be saved. In fact, the Bible says, if we deny that we have sinned, we have lied. The reality is we need salvation in Christ because we are sinners. And as Christians, we are sinners saved by grace. But what he is saying is, even though there will be ups and downs in life, we will struggle, we will disappoint ourselves, and certainly disappoint our Savior. True born-again believers desire to grow. And God has promised He will enable them to keep growing. It might be like this, but you will see progress in the life of a believer. It will be evident in life that there's been a transformation and God is at work. And we'll see progress. 
We may struggle with our, our issues, but God will keep helping us to grow to become more Him. That He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And we can be thankful for that. That He has saved us and begun the process of spiritual life. And because there is spiritual life in us, there will be spiritual growth. Look at chapter 2. We're getting a little bit closer to our target passage. He keeps building some more foundation. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let's just go back to verse 12 for a minute. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. One thing that that verse clearly does not mean is that we can work to somehow accomplish or establish salvation in our lives. He says, work out the salvation you already possess. He's not talking about doing good works or righteous deeds so that we can somehow convince God we are worthy of that gift. Folks, we will never be worthy of that gift. It is a gift given to us by grace, by mercy. But what it says is, for those of us who have received that gift of grace and mercy, let's work out our salvation. I mean, did do you enjoy pizza? I, I know I have a, a ninth grader. He'll be starting ninth grade just a couple of weeks. He loves pizza. <clears throat> if I put a lump of dough on that table, and if I were to add a little flour on top of it and start kneading it, flattening it out, and then rolling it, or if you're really good, you can do that with your hands, I guess, but getting it stretched to the right pattern, the right size and thickness, so you can add all that sauce, and that thick mozzarella cheese, getting hungry yet? And that, and that, that pepperoni or sausage, or whatever you like on there. You know what you're doing with that dough? You're working it out. You're finding new areas that needs to be expanded to. And what we're doing is, in obedience to the Lord, we are supposed to work out our own salvation, apply the reality of, of being a believer in Christ, stretch that out and apply it to other areas of our life. What are the implications of truly having a righteousness that's not our own? I don't have anything that I can please God, my own merits. I am pleasing to God through the merits of Jesus Christ. In that reality, being justified by grace, not by works, I start working that out into the different areas of my life. How can my life in this area and this area be pleasing to the Lord because of what He has done for me? Notice that next verse, verse 13. It says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is God who is at work in us, giving us the will or the desire and the work or the ability to do what is pleasing to Him. And I'd summarize it this way. Every Christian has a responsibility to act upon the truth that he knows and to practically live out his faith with a spirit of reverence before our great God. And every Christian has to acknowledge his own dependence upon God who works in us to produce the desire and ability to do what pleases Him. Folks, I am saved because of what God did for me. Not because of what I did for God. 
But because He has saved me, I want to do the things I do in order to please Him, to show gratitude to Him, to bring glory and honor to Him. That takes us to chapter 3. And that's where we're going to look at most of our time. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. We'll move quickly, but I, I think it's important for us to understand if we're going to stay on the pathway of spiritual growth, remember back that the, the story, the analogy, are we just going to get just so far, just enough to make us happy? Yeah, I, I'm, that's good enough. And we stop and we become stagnant. Are we going to have one year of Christian experience 20 times over, going in circles the rest of our life, or are we going to say, by God's grace, I will desire and I will work out my salvation so that its implications are seen and affecting and controlling all these different areas of my life. Year after year after year. I am not perfect. I never will be until I'm in the presence of the Lord. But I want to grow. I want to be more like Him. If we're going to stay on that upward path instead of petering out and spiraling someplace, we need to keep some things clearly in mind. And they're, they're given to us here in this chapter. Let's look at verse 15 and 16. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect and think they're mature, not sinlessly perfect, but whole, mature, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Now you can see the word attitude shows up several times. Uh, King James uses the word this mind. Uh, the the New, New International Version, the English Standard Version, use thinking. Let this kind of thinking control you. The idea is our perspective, the, the things we believe, the things that dictate and control how we respond in life. He said, let this, as many of you as are mature, have this attitude or mindset, this way of thinking in you. Now, if you see something like the word this, what should it immediately make you start asking in your mind? Okay? Now, you have to remember, I grew up in the home. My father was an English teacher, so forgive me if I, I get on grammar. But things like this are reference, pronouns. It refers to an antecedent, what precedes it, what came before so let this mind be in you. I mean, your mind should go, what kind of mind? What do you mean? What, what's this? I mean, when you read the Scriptures, you've got to ask questions. And it's pointing us backward. This mind. right? Now, I want you to think, the Apostle Paul, an incredibly godly, spiritually mature person, saying, this is the kind of thinking or mindset or perspective that needs to be in you. This mind, this thinking, this attitude. So let's go back to verse 12. If we're going to keep growing in our Christian life, what kind of thinking do we have to have? Look at verse 12. This is like Paul's confession, his admission. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I have laid hold of, I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, <clears throat> but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind 
and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let me just put it real simply. You know what Paul is saying? I have not arrived. I am not sinlessly perfect. I may be mature, whole, but I have not arrived. I am not there yet. I know I'm not all that God wants me to be. But I press forward. I have a determined, committed, energetic involvement in the process. I say, dear God, please help me to read the Word and pray and worship and and meditate on Your truth because I want to grow. I want to become more like You. And he said, I press forward towards that. He didn't take out, yeah, it'd be nice if it works out. Yeah, that'd be cool. He said, I press forward toward that goal. <clears throat> and he says, I do that in light of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know what that's talking about? For those of us <clears throat> excuse me, who live long enough, there is coming a day when the Lord will return to this earth and receive all of us up to be with Him. He'll catch us up together to be with Him in the clouds forever. And so shall we be with the Lord. I mean, some of us may precede the Lord's return through death. But the reality is that Paul pressed forward. He looked forward expectantly toward the time when he would be called up by the Lord to be with Him. And he lived in light of that coming day every day. And you flip back to verse 15, he said, let this mind be in you. If you're really mature, then this is the mindset, this is the thinking, the attitude that's got to be in your mind, your heart. You're pressing forward. You want to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. He also says, verse 16, or the end of verse 15, and if in anything you have a different attitude... God will reveal that also to you. I mean, have you ever been going through life and something comes to your attention and you go, oh my, I can't believe I just thought that. I can't believe I just did that. And it dawns on you, that really was not the way I should have responded to that. You know what God's doing? And if you're thinking some other way, God's revealing things to you. I mean, David, the psalmist, his prayer was, Search me, O God, and know my heart, I pray. Reveal if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, show me. I want to know. I'm not trying to hide from your truth. I want you to put it like a searchlight on me. Show me where there's areas that I can change and improve. If there's some place in which my attitude is not focused on being ready for the Lord's return, please point it out to me because I want you to change me. I want to grow. And he finishes that section by saying, however, don't be discouraged, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. I mean, it's not like we're starting over every week. I mean, just think about all the things you've learned. I mean, the old statement, everything I needed to know in life I learned in kindergarten. You know, you just think how many truths you learned in, in Sunday school and children's church that you can't ever afford to live without. You may learn a lot more facts. You may learn a lot more complex theology. But you can't ever in your Christian life ever afford to do without the things you learned as a child. We need all of that. And, and he uses a phrase, he says, and he said, keep living by that same standard or keep living in line with the things you've learned. 
maybe I've mentioned before, my older son was in the United States Marine Corps. And I got to go to Paris Island, South Carolina to watch him graduate and finally have the, the, the Eagle Globe and Anchor pin put on him. And only then did he officially become a Marine. Thirteen weeks. And man, they earned every bit of that. And I remember watching those guys marching. And they would, I mean, hundreds of guys, hundreds of new recruits in, in lines and columns. And you could have put a straight edge. You could have put a snap line. And columns and rows were in perfect sequence. And you know what he's saying? All those things you've learned before, don't forget them. It's not that you can depend on new stuff and forget the old. Just keep living by the truths you've learned. Don't neglect them, forsake them, forget them. Keep focused and let your life be kept in line with all those truths you've learned. Because it's a cumulative effect of truth that shapes our thinking, affects our our passions and desires, dictates our decisions, and governs our life. Just keep in line with the truth that you already know and let God show you areas where you can become more like Him. Look at verse 17 to 19. There's a second truth. If we're going to stay on the pathway of spiritual growth, we need to... um, maintain the right mindset or thinking or attitude. But if we're going to stay on the pathway of spiritual growth, we also need to maintain the right examples around us. Um, examples, influences are, are a significant part of our life. Notice what it says in verse 17. Brothers or brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. We'll stop right there. We'll come back and look at verse 18 19 in a minute. But brothers, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. He says basically two things. Follow me. Follow others who are following like me. Now, if you weren't careful, that could almost in our modern, arrogant American minds, okay, we'd really, we really do live in an arrogant culture. I mean, how boastful and and full of self our culture is. But he's he's not saying, hey, you want to know what you're supposed to be like in life? Be like Paul, because I've I've arrived. You know, if if you want to think of this in the right way, think in terms of 2 Corinthians 11, when it says, be followers of me even as I am of Christ. You know what Paul's saying? Be followers of me, because look where I'm going. Be followers of me, because look what I'm focused on. And Paul is saying, follow me so you too can pursue becoming more like Christ. Now, I don't know your feelings on things like this, uh, like firearms. So I'll be very generic, but I used to be a hunter safety instructor here in the state of Michigan, certified by the state, and I used to teach up at summer camp, Camp Kobiak. I taught hunter safety, I taught first aid, and safe firearm handling, and all those kinds of things. And when I would teach young people, one time I had 30 teenagers in a class, and we were all on the rifle range, three rotations of 10 at a time. Uh, that's a lot of responsibility. That was a, a scary thing sometimes. And, I, and I, I tried very carefully to impress upon the young people the importance of safety. But when I took them, and I explained, you know that, that 22 rifle? 
You see that thing in the back? It's either a V or a U-shape or it's a, a, a circle. That's the rear sight. Take a look at that thing. Okay. See that thing that's wobbling out there on the front of that 22 rifle? Slow it down. Okay. That's the front sight. Now, tell me what you see. You know what my goal was? My goal was not so they could say, I see it, I see it. I see the middle sight right in the middle of the rear sight. Cool. You know what my goal was? I wanted to hear them say, what do you see? I see the target. Right? My goal is not to get them to see the front sight and the rear sight. But what are those targets? What are those sights for? They're to give focus and direction. My goal is not to get them to stare at the sights and go cross-eyed. My goal is to help them see the target. So what's Paul saying? Be followers of me even as I am Christ. Don't look at me. See which way I'm pointing and put your focus on Christ. Folks, who is there in your life who is pointed towards Christ? Who is there that is so committed to pursuing Christ's likeness they long for the day when they'll see the Lord Jesus? That it consumes them. I'm not talking about being weird and detached and but they love the Lord and it, it gives life to them. He says, follow my example and observe or make note of those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. People like Paul and the other missionaries, you make note of them. It's like if you want to draw a line to mark out who's on the side of the line that they're really wanting to pursue and be like Christ. And who's not? He said, mark them out. Observe them. Make an observable distinction in your minds who really is following and seeking earnestly to become like Christ. Spend as much time as you can with people like that. That's what he's saying. Make note of those examples who are pursuing Christ's likeness in their life. It really matters to them. And hang with them. Do you know that's what one of the primary purposes for church Man, you've been out there in the world all week, and, and I know I'm a minister, and I, I don't know an unsaved person that I work with now. But I'll tell you what, I understand where you're at, because I worked in a bakery plant going through college, and I worked on a construction crew going through college, and I worked at United Parcel Service going through seminary. I was even a police chaplain and hung out with police officers, riding in their cars and meeting them in their break room. And you know what? When you've been around the influence of people who have no hope, who live only for the sensual satisfaction, the material reward they can gather around them, and you're around it all week, and you can come and be with a bunch of people who love God and love each other and want to live for what really will last for all eternity. Wow! I mean, what a source of encouragement that is. I mean, I hope you look forward to that all week long. And the Apostle says, Follow my example and observe those who walk according to the same example or pattern that you have found in us. Find those who are heading towards the Lord Jesus in, in greater maturity and godliness and fall in line with them. You know, hang around with them. Allow them to be a positive, encouraging influence in your life. Because we choose who will influence us. We choose negative influences or we'll choose positive influences. You can't choose have no influence in your life. That's a dream. We choose, for good or ill, those that we will allow to be influences in our life. In fact, this verse, the next verse, gives a warning about avoiding the wrong kind of influence. 
Look at verse 18 and 19. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now I tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is, who glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. I mean, basically he's talking about false teachers, people who live for the wrong ends and goals, people who were facing judgment, people who were living for material sensual satisfaction, people who prided themselves in things that they should have been ashamed of, people who were dependent on and focused on material temporal values. He says, you know what? Make sure you know the difference and stay away from people who are pushing that. I mean, we're surrounded by people that that's all there is. Live it up. You only go around. Get all you can. But folks, that is not what God asks us to do. And we should make sure we we, we understand and we have a clear distinction. We, we aren't supposed to hide from unsaved people. We're not supposed to put ourselves in a little sanctuary or fortress and not ever interact with unsaved people. But be careful so that our hearts are not enamored with those things so that they begin to have a, an influence negatively upon our spiritual lives. We have to be careful about false teachers. And false teachers aren't all religious overtly. There's false teachers on the airwaves and on album covers and on the Internet. And we need to just be careful about the kind of influence we allow to influence our thinking and our desires for life. But look at the last couple of verses as we finish. Verse 19 to 21. If we want to stay on that path of spiritual growth, we also need to maintain the right goal in front of us. We need to keep focused on what lies before us. Look at verse 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Let's just start with that first phrase. Our citizenship. I, I didn't bring it with me, but you know, do you have one of those little blue booklets? They're about that wide and about that, that high. It says United States of America. And it's got a legal seal embossed in it. It's got your picture embossed into it. And you've got, maybe you've got a couple of stamps in there from different countries you've been to. I've been... In 1984, I got a chance to travel all over Europe on a church history study tour, like 3,000 miles of driving in three weeks. We were all over the place. Six years ago, I was able to go from Detroit to Amsterdam to Mumbai, India, which is the old Bombay, and then straight down toward the south of the country to a place called Coimbatore in the province of Tamil Nadu was able to spend a week there preaching and teaching and ministering to a group of young Indian seminary students and preaching in the churches on the weekend. But you know what? That little passport gave me the privilege of coming back into our country. Gave me the privilege of coming back in and it said, you have the right to come in here and we won't stop you. And I showed them my passport 
I hadn't committed any crimes. I wasn't bringing any contraband. And they said, welcome home. Glad to have you back in the U.S. Have a great time. And I walked in. Do you know where our citizenship really is? I mean, I am thankful for my United States citizenship. But I have another citizenship that really ultimately is more important. And that is my citizenship is in heaven. There will be lots of other Christians in heaven who aren't Americans. I'm thankful to know some of them right now. But someday I'll meet people from every kindred, tribe, and nation who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. And we as citizens of whatever country will finally get to come back home and that passport of the righteousness of Christ that clothes us. He'll say, welcome home. I've been waiting for you. Enter into the joy of your reward. Folks, I'm a citizen of heaven. And someday I'll hear him say, Thou good and faithful servant. Does that motivate you? Does that really get a hold of you? I mean, there's nothing like coming home. Do you think of heaven as home? You're a stranger and a pilgrim, a sojourner here on this earth. We're only going to be here for a little while. I mean, all of life. But all of life compared to eternity is a moment. That spiritual reality has to grip us. Our citizenship, we need to remember where we belong, heaven. Look at the last part of verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the Savior who, if we don't die and go to be with Him, He is coming to get us. We're waiting for a Savior whose nail-pierced hands and thorn pierced brow and spear pierced side and we will see him and we will be with him who gave his life he became sin for us he took our sin on himself so that we who are sinful could be made righteous that's who we're going to get to see we remember who to whom we belong and we long to be reunited with him look at verse 21 he jesus christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. And how will He do that? By the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Jesus Christ is more powerful than anyone, anything in the entire universe. And there is coming a day when this body with all of its frailties and limitations, I mean, we, we struggle with disease and illness, we struggle with just being human, the limitations of finiteness. I mean, we're locked into time and space. One day, Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, will use that power and He will conform us and He will give us a new body. He'll give us an eternal body. We'll have a resurrection body. And we will spend all eternity with Him and we won't have to deal with all the same frustrations and limitations. We will not be God, but we will be godly will be God-like in the sense that we will be made in His image and we'll have a resurrection body. We will not have any of those limitations that frustrate us here on this earth. You know, when you're on the trail, when you're driving up that road, and it seems like, you know, this Christian life is getting a little bit tough. This isn't quite what I was expecting. I really thought I was hoping for something easier. Just remember why it's hard. We're living in a sinful world. We're living here with finite, limited human bodies and minds. 
But we have a promise that we, if we have trusted Christ, we will one day be like Him. And if we keep that mind that we're preparing, we're living our life to prepare for that call on to high to be with Him. We, that we're gathering people around us to influence us who are following after, desiring to become more like Christ. And we're, we're focusing on what's waiting for us, that we will go home to heaven. We'll go home to our Savior. And we'll go home to a place where there'll be no more sorrow or suffering or shame, where we'll enjoy the presence of God forevermore. Folks, if that's not enough to kick us in the seat of the pants and get us moving up the trail again, to quit feeling sorry for ourselves and say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for working in my heart to change me. Thank you, God, for giving me Your truth. Thank you, God, for giving me Your Spirit to encourage me. Thank you, God, for giving me Christian friends to remind me what You're doing in people's lives. Thank you, God. And I want to keep pressing forward for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, I, I've had the privilege of having three children. Our oldest daughter is 30, our son is 29, and our youngest child is 13. And Josh has sometimes said, Dad, this is hard. I said, I know it is, son. Take a look at your older brother and sister. You see them? Now, they're not, they're not perfect. But you see, see, see all those choices they had to make? You know, they had to make right choices when they were in junior high so they'd be ready for high school. They had to make really hard choices in high school so they'd be ready for college. They had to make really hard choices in college, in their young adult years, so they'd be able to be mature marriage partners and parents. See, getting older is not easy. But they would never want to go backwards. I loved being a kid. I was blessed to have a wonderful childhood. I loved being a teenager. I really did. I, I, I wasn't particularly a rebellious child. I, I had struggles. But I enjoyed being a teenager. But you know what? Now that I've reached adulthood, I would never, ever want to go back. You know why? Because I've realized what maturity is, at least to a certain degree. And though I thank God for my childhood, I thank God for my youth, having finally become an adult, I'm not one of those who said, I wish I could be a kid all over again. I like remembering my childhood days. They were important. I love remembering my teenage years. They were important. But I'd never want to go back because the whole point of life is to progress and to mature same way with our Christian life, folks. Growing up is tough. But once you've grown, you'd never want to go back because you realize the blessings of spiritual growth and maturity are incredible. And it's worth all the hard choices. It's worth all the sacrifices. It's worth all the disciplines. It's worth all the times you have to say yes to what's eternal and spiritual and all the times you have to say no to what is material and temporal and sensual. It's worth it to press forward, to keep on the pathway of spiritual growth, and you'll never, ever regret becoming more like Jesus Christ in any way. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't work your way to Him. You cannot be religious enough or pious enough to merit salvation. 
but you can repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive that gracious, merciful gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, His Son. And you can know Him and be changed forever by His mercy and grace and live in the light of His truth. I pray that that's the case for us all today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank You so much. You are a wonderful Savior. It is a joy to reflect on Your finished work on the cross for us. It is humbling to be reminded that we haven't arrived. We are in process, Lord, but help us to keep pressing forward, to keep growing upward, to keep longing to be more like You. And I pray You'd help us to take these truths from this passage and take them and apply them deep in our hearts so that we will continue to progress and not to be lethargic, apathetic, and just going with the flow. Help us not to pull off and find someplace comfy to park our lives, but to keep pressing forward toward the mark of the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you. Pray you'd work in our lives, change us each and every day, no matter how young or how old we may be. There are always areas where we can grow. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.